What a glorious day the Lord has made as we continue our study here, our Christmas studies, and really the theme is Emmanuel. And so as we turn our attention now to the actual prophetic word of God, to Isaiah chapter 7, if you'd turn there, we're going to look at the first 14 verses, but we're specifically going to focus in on the 14th verse. And as we do so, you know, one of the challenges that every pastor faces is we, we have these things that we call holidays. Uh, I, I had a little test yesterday. Connie and I were out doing some, some Christmas shopping, and so I, I repeated every single time that I could. We're checking out whatever, whatever we're doing. I would say, Merry Christmas. I did that 12 times that I can remember. I got exactly one Merry Christmas in return. I got... Happy holidays. I got, is that all you're buying? Can I tell you that's not the message of Christmas? Amen? God with us is the message of Christmas. Amen? Dear family, the world is exactly as it was. When Emmanuel was prophesied, not much has changed. We have the truth. We have the message, the real message of Christmas. And in fact, it is Emmanuel, God with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we cannot even fathom what it was like for Jesus to leave heaven and to come to this earth. But in fact, that is what happened that first Christmas morning. And God, as we pick up the story that you authored through the great prophet Isaiah, Lord, this wonderful window, God, would you speak to us through the majesty of your word. We bless you. We praise you. We give you this time now. Lord, please uh, give us a Christmas message this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, here in Isaiah chapter 7. And it begins, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And remember as you read that word Judah, this is a time that you need to remember your history of the children of Israel. They came into the land under Joshua. They had conquered the land. They, They began to inhabit the land. Uh, But their sojourn in the land of promise, their trip into the promised land, was anything uh, but trouble-free. And in fact, the children of Israel had been divided now. There was literally a civil war that existed between brothers and sisters, between even friends and family. And so when you read the word Judah and you read the word Ephraim or Israel, you have to understand that there was a division. Eleven tribes dwelled in the north, in the region of Galilee principally, and one tribe dwelt in the region of Jerusalem. That was the tribe of Judah. There was strife. There was civil unrest. There was terror. There was tumult. It was tough. It was threatening. The world at that time, from their perspective, was a very, very, very messed up world. 
And so when I tell you that not much has changed in the last 2,700 years, your Bible declares that truth. That Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So there you see them. Uzziah, the king of Judah, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. They went up to Jerusalem to make war against it. The storm clouds were gathering. Their world was a mess. Difficult times. They were wondering how they were going to feed their families. They had no idea if the water supply would hold out. They weren't certain about tomorrow. Went up to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. It was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So now if it's not bad enough that there's a civil war going on, a neighboring country is going to take sides in the matter, the country of Syria which at that time was part of the Assyrian army. And so now, sworn enemies, though they're brothers and sisters. And so his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved in the wind. They trembled in fear over what lied ahead. Frightened. Future was uncertain. Surely you shall not be established. And if you pick up with me now in verse 10, we'll look at these middle verses from verse 3 onward in just a little bit. But verse 10, it goes on now to say, And moreover the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in depth or in height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing? Remember that David was the king of Judah. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary God also? On verse 14, our focus really for this study. And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz, you have an opportunity to ask anything of me. Being as you won't ask, I'll give you a sign. And that sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we ask ourselves simple questions. How how does God comfort the people? What does he say to you? What does he say to me? You see, maybe like the Hebrew prophet Isaiah or perhaps like the people who were almost ready to be actually trapped in Jerusalem. And ultimately the prophet Isaiah would find himself in a a city that was besieged in Jerusalem. And in fact the Assyrian army would come and it would lay siege to the city. They would be on Mount Scopus and as we traveled to Jerusalem, Mount Scopus is a little less than a mile from the Temple Mount and it was there that the Assyrian army would gather. You see our lives very often are filled with those Assyrian experiences. You have armies that are raging against you. Maybe it's the army of finance. Perhaps it's the army of a job that maybe is insufficient or non-existent. You have an army that's against you. Maybe it's family. I mean, I think we all 
uh, ultimately at Christmas time have the few members of the family that we'd rather did not show up to our Christmas celebration. Amen. We have things that are that are raging against us. Our world is dangerous. It's a mess. It's upside down, and frankly, nobody has any answers. You watch the presidential debates. If that doesn't leave you hopeless, I don't know what does. I don't care which set you watch. Couldn't care less whether you got an R or a D by your name on your ballot. But I can tell you this. Were it not for Emmanuel, we have reason to be hopeless. But because of him, we have reason to hope. And so this amazing picture, perhaps the greatest of all the prophetic windows found in the Old Testament, perhaps as much as 25 years will rapidly pass between Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is called, and chapter 7. Isn't it strange how time passes so quickly? If there's anything that I, I now know as I've gotten a little older, notice I said a little older, qualify that statement. But as we, as we age, we realize it seems as though time is just a blip. It's like you wake up and it's 20 years later. Connie and I were decorating our, our Christmas tree yesterday. and Yes, we have a Christmas tree and no, it doesn't mean that we worship pagan gods. I always have the people, well, you know, that's Saturnalia. Yeah, okay then. But on that Christmas tree, for us, it's a family tradition. And that Christmas tree has 40 years worth of ornaments on it. Can I tell you that not every ornament on that tree is a happy, happy memory? There's a couple of them that you can look, yeah, that was when we almost lost Brandon. That was the one from when your dad almost left this earth. You see, there are troubling times all the time. And if you live long enough, you'll go through troubling times. The question is, what do you do about those troubling times? How does God comfort? Notice verse 3, and let's look at these middle verses now. How does God comfort in that time of trouble and trial? Don't worry, God's still on the throne is the message. Check it out. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz. Now remember at that time, Jerusalem is a very small city. We, we have a tendency to think of cities like our own, Los Angeles. If it happens to be at rush hour, it take you three days to get to downtown L.A., right? It was not so then. Jerusalem was a very small. Uh, the old city at that time probably was no more than 100 acres. It's a tiny place. Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son. So Isaiah has a couple of sons, and this one, his name happens to mean a remnant remains. Isaiah uh, is, is, a, is a form, is a fashioned name that also could be Joshua or Yehoshua. And so you have these two guys, Isaiah the prophet and his son go out, and, and God speaks through their names. He says, go out there to the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, and at that time, David's city, the city of Zion, the, below the Temple Mount today. If you travel there, there was an aqueduct that had been carved into rock, that solid rock, 
yielded a, a stream of water that went into the Kidron Valley, and it flowed from the pool of Siloam, the springs actually underneath the city of David. And so he says, I want you to go out there to the Fuller's Field. And when we think of the Fuller's Field, it's like the Fuller Brush Man. I mean, what was out there? No, it was actually the, the laundromat of Jerusalem. The Fuller's Field is where people went as the wastewater, in essence, the water that was left over that wasn't consumed for drinking, would go out into this field, and it was there that people would take their clothes, their tunic, their cloak, they would get them wet, they would smash them on rocks, and they'd let them dry in the sun. So there was a lot of people out there in the Fuller's Field. And it would be there that they would converse. They didn't have iPhones, no internet, no television, no movie theaters. So their idea of having a good day was go wash clothes together and say to him there, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. He's saying these two, you know as kids, us guys, we love to play with fire. Amen? Say amen. We do, yeah. Don't deny it just because your spouse is sitting next to you. We love to play with fire. And there's not a boy in here who's ever been to a campfire, and you don't take a stick, and you light that thing on fire, and you let it burn, and then it turns into an ember, and then you spell your name, and you make Jedi, you do everything with it. That's a firebrand, a smoking stick. But they're really not good for much. You can't cook on them. You can't do anything with them. You can kind of play with them. And so the picture is quite clear here. The king of Assyria and the king of the northern kingdom, are nothing but smoking sticks as far as God's concerned. Oh, they may be kings in their own world, but God could snuff them out with the pinch of his finger. You see the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because of Syria, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, and the son of Remaliah, they plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it. Let's make a gap in its wall for ourselves. Let's, let's breach the wall and go in and get them. And we'll set a king over them. The son of Tabil, his, mean, his name actually means son of nothing. So what a great name. This is my son, nothing. <laughs> for thus says the Lord God. Look, these guys have their plans. The world's barking at you right now. The world's trying to get your attention right now. The world wants you to believe that everything's falling apart. What's God's answer? It shall not stand. God's will will be accomplished. Nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be broken so that it will not even be a people. He says, the enemy that looks big to you today will not even exist when I get done with them. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son, if you will not believe. He says, look, just trust me with this. Let me take care of it. You be obedient to my word. And so he makes this word picture. He says, look, these guys are fire stirrers. They're, they're, they're going to come to nothing. Don't panic. God has got it under control. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. Don't waste your talents. On trying to fight through something you don't need to fight through. Family of God, how much time do we spend 
fighting battles that we don't need to fight. Thinking about things that ultimately we can't change. And so the Lord says, look, I have it under control. Trust me, I have it under control. Then he goes on to say, let me prove it to you. And he says something, he, he says something to Ahaz that I, I have always found very intriguing and actually wonderful because it's such a picture of the world that we live in. And it really is a picture of each one of us. And it's the place that the world still wanders around and dabbles in today. Verse 10, notice what it says. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, look, ask anything for yourself from the Lord your God. Test me. See if I am not who I say I am. Let me prove it to you. You see, the world, when they see you, is actually seeing proof that God is real. Did you know that? Because your changed lives represent his power in this world. What God has done for you, in you, to you, and through you. As as I'm walking out to to greet first service, I'm shared a story Uh, of a woman whose sister was literally spared from death this week. Doctor said, it's it's over, it's done. Buy a plot, get a box. They don't know our God. No, it's not that God heals every single person. It's not that he solves every problem. But he is more than able for anything. Amen? Amen? Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. He says, I don't care how broad you make it. I don't care how tall it is. You ask me anything. This is the world's response today. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Why? Why would Ahaz say that? Isaiah, speaking for God as his emissary, says, look, you can ask anything you want of God. But you see, people don't want to ask of God. They don't want to inquire of God. They have no desire to hear what God has to say because if they hear what God says, they might actually have to believe. And that's the real issue. If I ask God a question and he answers the question, what do I do then? You see, this is the stubborn heart of unbelief. I won't ask, I won't test the Lord. And then he said, Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you also weary my God? And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for one, I'll just give you one anyway, because I want you to know who I am. Why? John would tell us, 700 years later, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? So what does Isaiah hear from the Lord? And then he shares with Ahaz. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And that sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, the world doesn't like the sign. Well, the world likes to talk about God, but they don't like to talk about this Jesus guy, Emmanuel, God with us. It's a miracle, Ahaz. Can I tell you that God is still a God of miracles? 
He's still doing miracles. I'm a miracle. I would venture to guess that most of you in here would say, Amen, you're a miracle as well. We've been redeemed, we've been changed, we've been set free, we've been broken out of bondage. The things that once held us have now lost their grip because of the power of that babe in a manger, Emmanuel. Amen? (laughs) Hallelujah. We need to stop dumbing down the message of Christmas so it can be palatable to people. Not only should you tell them Merry Christmas, tell them Jesus loves you. Amen? You want to just tweak them bad. Merry Christmas, and Jesus loves you, and he died for you. That's the message of Christmas. Yeah, you may get thrown out of some restaurant someplace. Then tell the people in the parking lot, Jesus loves them too. You see, that's the miracle of Christmas. But there was stubborn unbelief then. There's stubborn unbelief now. And as we celebrate Christmas, don't neglect the fact that you're going to come into contact with people who have stubborn unbelief. It doesn't want to go away. The enemy's got a grip on their life. Well, you know, I don't want to talk about Jesus. Well, that's just too bad because that's all I want to talk about is Jesus. You see, well, we just capitulate. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. Can I share with you? The Bible actually says the gospel's an offense, Okay. So when you share the gospel, people are it's going to like really twist them up. Ahaz didn't want to hear it either. The world still does not want to hear because there's stubborn unbelief in this world. What's that response? The response is, okay, I'll give you a sign anyway. I'll send my only begotten son into this world. I'll send God with you. That's what Emmanuel means. Amen? God came here because we couldn't clean ourselves up so we could go there. He came here. The world's still trying to clean itself up. And it's not working. And it never will work. That's why religion, man's attempt to reach God cannot and will not ever work. There's no amount of cleaning this up that's going to make it good enough for heaven. And so God says, look, I'll give you a sign. I'll send my son into this world. And I kind of love the way the Lord does this because when you really think about it, I'm just going to give you a sign anyway. Because he loves us that much, amen? Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you'll try the patience of God as well? Can you imagine how long-suffering God has been with this world? When you look around the world, you're going, God, you must be infinitely merciful and infinitely kind and long-suffering, and you must really love us to let us do this. Some people look at it and, you know, they get, they get hopeless. I don't get hopeless. I get hope-filled. It's like I know God must have a purpose. Because if he's God, he could surely stop what's going on. But he loves man. 
Nobody could mistake this, this sign. A virgin would give birth to this child. You know, people always focus in, and it's really interesting to me because people always haggle about, well, it's a miracle. So? When you talk to people, give you a little, little test. You want to do some of your own research. Ask people a simple question. Do you believe in miracles? You do a simple search on the Internet, you're going to find out that even the most secular people in the world, about 80% of them believe in miracles. If you take it to the church, it's nearly 100%. You would think it would be 100% in God's house, but there's still a few people here that don't quite believe, but it's a huge percentage of people believe in miracles. So what's the problem? They don't want to honor the miracle maker. They want to say, well, you know, it's just a series of things. It just There was a moon and Uranus and Jupiter all aligned on a certain day and, you know, a miracle happened. I'm thinking, no. I'm thinking God is still in the miracle business. God simply did a miracle. You know, people, well, it's a virgin birth. How did that happen? You know what? To me, that's the smaller of the miracles in this passage. You know the bigger miracle? That Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, would come to this wretched planet. That's the bigger miracle. Amen? Because you know what? Just like your family that you kind of hope doesn't show up at Christmas, think about God and the world. Well, let's go next week. That'd be kind of where you'd be at, isn't it? It's like, them, hang out here in heaven with the angels, let's stay home. God with us. What an amazing picture. And really what it's saying is that God keeps his promises. And he made a promise to us. It's recorded for you back in Genesis chapter 3, by the way. Some people say, well, this Jesus, that's a New Testament. No, it's not. The Lord of heaven coming to this earth started all the way back in the book of Genesis. Verse 15 of chapter 3, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan himself, between your seed and her seed, between man's nature and Adam, and between the Savior's nature because he's God. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heels. Just look, ultimately, your king, our savior, is going to put his head on, on his foot on Satan's head, and it's going to be over. Amen? In the meantime, God's still doing miracles. He's proving himself. I always look at this passage and think, man, Ahaz, you should ask for a sign, dude. You could have said, you know, give me a couple billion bucks or something. But you see, we're all born in sin. Every last one of you are here today. You're a sinner. Sorry, you may not think it, but you're a sinner. If you're here and you know Jesus, you're a sinner who now has a Savior. But you're still a sinner. And praise God that man did not save himself. God saved us from ourselves. He sent Jesus into the world to make that happen. 
You see, when we think about God keeping his promises, he kept that that promise of Genesis chapter 3. He's kept the promise of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He's kept all of his promises. Think about it. Micah prophesied Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. You see, God keeps his promises. And his promise was Jesus would be born of God and not of human beings. And so this miracle boy comes into this world and overshadows Mary. And remember that Mary even declared, look, Jesus is my Savior. Read Luke chapter 1. My God and my Savior is what Mary said. She needed a Savior too. So did Joseph. What an amazing child this is. And therefore the Lord will give, him, give himself uh, to you as a sign. And behold, that virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel. You, you see, that's the greatest part of all of this. That God would come here. That God would come to you. That God would be with you. And wherever you go, he's there. And whatever you do, he is with you in it. All of Christianity really hangs on this one central promise. If God didn't come to earth, we're not going to heaven. Amen? Because I don't care what kind of ladder maker you are, you ain't getting there. I don't care how good you think you are, you're not making it to heaven. For in you, Scripture says, dwells no good thing. And for in fact, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The message of Christmas is God came here. Or Emmanuel. Mary knew that. That's why she cried out. That's why she said, look, I, 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 this is my Savior. Think about that. Can you imagine being Jesus' mom? I always thought, you know, it's like she had to have a very special relationship with, with the Lord himself. But she still called him Lord. Been waiting for my kids to do that. <laughs> Not going to happen. Because there's only one God in three persons. Job's already been taken. We're going to let Jesus be Lord. Amen? Emmanuel, God with us. And when you think about all of the truth that's contained in this one simple verse, that's why Luke then records the, the angel comes to Mary, announces it. Mary, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. You remember what she said? <laughs> How can it be since I'm a virgin? She knew it was a miracle. She absolutely knew it was a miracle. He's one of one, exactly as the book of Colossians tells us. He's the preeminent one. He's the, that's why we can call him the father of all eternity. Amen? That's why he's the prince of peace. That's why he is who he is. Mary knew it. We know it. And that is the Christmas message. And so when you think about it, really at the end, see, he is Emmanuel. He's God with us. Do you ever think about why they actually named Jesus Jesus? Because he is Emmanuel. He's God with his people. 
but they called his name Jesus. He is who he is. He's God with his people. But they named him after his dad. Yahushua. God who is salvation. That's what his name means. So when you think about Emmanuel who came to this earth, God with his people, God with his people is also our God who is salvation. Amen? That's the Christmas message. You see, for too many people, Christmas represents exactly what we have in a large scale in the foyer. It's just plastic or plaster, or maybe you've got a really not, maybe you've got a marble Jesus. And he's stored in a box for 11 months out of the year, and that little marble Jesus comes out, and he goes in the marble manger along with the marble camel and the marble cow and the marble Mary and Joseph and usually some three wise men and a couple of shepherds and some sheep and a manger. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is God with us who is also our salvation. Amen? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Don't forget that message. Because the world's going to get the manger message. They may not even like that. And then they're going to pack the manger message up and they're going to put it away for another year and figure out a way to make a buck on it. You tell them the real message is God came to earth so that you could be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think on this one verse, Lord, sufficient for our day would be the thought that you, Jesus, would leave the glories of heaven and come to this earth to be born of a simple family, a carpenter's son, that you would have calluses on your hands and you'd walk the dusty roads of Judea. Lord, that one day... Some Roman guards would nail some iron nails through your hands and your feet. If you are our Emmanuel, Lord, you're God with us. And you are still with us. And we honor you because you came to this world for a very specific reason. That the world might be saved through you. And so we honor you as our Emmanuel. And we praise you as our King Jesus. We bless your name, Lord. Make us a beautiful picture to the world of your miracle-working power still. We love you. We praise you. We honor you, Jesus. We honor you, Emmanuel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.